You're listening to Mystery of 2012, a Sounds True podcast. Episode number six, The Mystery of 2012, Daniel Pinchbeck on the Many Angles of 2012. This week I speak with journalist Daniel Pinchbeck, who's the author of 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. We explore the various views on the meaning of 2012 and examine their validity. By doing so, we dive into the broad array of different perspectives held across the world on the importance of this quickly approaching date. I'm noticing these days that I'm becoming a bit of a 2012 grump, if you will. And I think it's because so much of what I hear about 2012 is speculative, unfounded, metaphoric, dreamy, hallucinogenic. And yet at the same time, I feel something deep inside that thinks there's something actually happening, a type of quickening a type of change, but yet most of the time when I talk to people about 2012, the kinds of things that they say don't rationally make any sense to me. And I'm wondering, Daniel, if you can help me with this, my grumpiness. That's interesting. I mean, I, I found that the uh, essays in the book were fairly uh, compelling and even convincing on all sorts of levels. I mean, whether it was Peter Russell's take that you can see that successive transformations in, in culture and consciousness happen in exponentially shorter amounts of linear time, or the work that John Major Jenkins has done on understanding the uh, exact alignment of the solstice sun uh, rising at the dark rift at the center of the Milky Way, so it's kind of an eclipse of the solar center, or other types of research that weren't presented in the book so much. This Russian scientist Dmitriev was looking at the sort of periods where more cosmic energies are coming to the solar system, that the whole solar system seems to be going through a transformation on a system level where the outer planets are gaining atmospheres and the magnetic poles are shifting. And he sees more uh, vacuumed, I think they're called vacuum domains on the Earth, like hurricanes, tornadoes, which he thinks represent more plasma phenomena, which represent these other energies coming in. I can talk about that stuff a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I'm personally not a hard scientist. I think that the whole paradigm makes sense on a lot of different levels. And yeah, some of those levels are intuitive, or the whole thing that, that I was just discussing is that uh, it's really trying to find this juncture between uh, intuition and rationality. And uh, the old mindset of strictly only paying attention to quantifiable and material indicators is a little bit outdated, as is the sort of new age mindset of only caring about uh, intuitive and visionary and kind of channeled uh, material. So it's really a, a very delicate process of finding that juncture. Yeah, so let's look at that juncture a little bit more. It seems that most people would be able to easily agree that there's this huge accelerated time of transformation occurring that we're in. It's the pinpointing of the time, the winter solstice 2012, where I think my own rational mind starts asking some questions. I mean, you can talk about all these things that are happening in the sky with the galactic alignment, etc., but there's an interpretive component there of how will these different factors of astronomical 
alignments, etc., actually be affecting human consciousness? I mean, how do we make that? How do you make that leap? I mean, you're a journalist, Daniel. What evidence has come to support 2012 for you? That's what I really want to know. Well, I mean, the evidence was presented in a 450-page book that took me four or five years to write, and it was all sorts of different levels of evidence. I thought about it at great length, so it's hard for me to just put it all into, into one little answer. But also, personally, I don't really give a hoot about the winter solstice 2012. I mean, in a way, I think what's most important is to have a, a focal point for a kind of transition that we can see is underway. Personally, I can't get anything done you know, without a deadline. So in a way, I think that this whole 2012 meme can be utilized as a positive spur to the cultural imagination and as a way of activating uh, people's energies and, and resources toward transformation. Now, having said that, it does seem that there's a lot of good evidence that keeps pointing towards this date, kind of like a surprising amount, whether it's Ernst Laszlo putting out, based on his systems theory work, that the chaos point come around then, where if we don't change direction of human society, that, that we wouldn't be able to get it together, you know, beyond then. So for me, personally, a little bit almost bored of thinking about focusing on 2012 and more focused on what's the trajectory of this process that's underway and what are we as uh, individuals or as members of communities, as leaders of communities, as business people, as hopefully like open-hearted people, like what do we do in this time? And we're seeing now the potential for uh, you know, a huge amount of chaos in the world, a huge amount of uh, hunger, starvation. I mean, even the guy Zelik who runs the World Bank, I mean, even he was getting choked up when he began to recognize that uh, the developing world's uh, focus on its own financial mishigas was neglecting what our inability to, to keep our financial system going could do to all these people around the world who, who are, you know, waiting to get their little sugar cane or their little goods to the market. Well, of course, I agree with you that the more important question is how, as open-hearted human beings, can we create a different and better world? Of course, I agree with you. But when you talk about 2012 as like, hey, this is a focal point, we can all kind of rally around it, and people who have interesting observations can write books and use that as the focal point, there's a way that it becomes a little specious to me, if you know what I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I mean, I don't think so, because I just went through about five different ways that the thing is not specious at all. There's an astronomical event, winter solstice sun rising at the dark rift at the center of the Milky Way. There's physicists and scientists like Dmitriev observing solar system-wide phenomena of transition. There's a solar cycle, solar maximum, which has been going up over the course of the whole century, which could lead to all sorts of electromagnetic changes on the planet. There's a huge amount of research that's available. I mean, Lawrence Joseph, I mean, and in fact, you published a lot of this stuff in your book. I mean, it, it's more and more uh, compelling. Anything that we do, you know, whether we're scientists or myth makers, I mean, all we can do as humans is use language and techniques to create models. So you can always deny any model, just as people deny global warming, even though it can be statistically measured and the vast majority of scientists in the world support that it is happening and it's caused to a certain extent by uh, human intervention in, in the natural climate system. So, Daniel, just if you can help me out for a moment, just be a friend, okay? Be a friend. These different things that are happening astronomically, can you explain to me what your sense is of how they will affect us here on the earth 
the actual effect that we're going to experience and why there is an effect? Well, to a certain extent I can and to a certain extent I can't. As I keep saying, I don't pretend to be a scientist and I haven't done the depth of research into it that John Major Jenkins has. And I think there's a certain level of uh, mystery here. So I think that that's all part of it. For me, there's this incredible acceleration of technology development. There's an incredible acceleration of biospheric uh, destruction. And there's an evolution in human consciousness that seems to be taking place, which can't be statistically verified, but anecdotally can be supported when you talk to people about their own experiences subjectively of increasing amounts of synchronicity, of increasing experiences of intentionality. So it really almost feels as if humans on the earth are being reorganized the way, you know, metal filings begin to kind of reorganize as a magnet approaches. You know, I don't think anybody has the exact scientific framework for what is causing this and why this acceleration is happening at this time and why this critical threshold that the Mayans seem to have recognized from 1,000 or 1,500 years ago does seem to be the, the make or break point for humanity. But the fact is that it does seem to be the case that this threshold, whether you want to say 2012 exactly or, you know, 2009 to 2015, this is fucking it for us. If we don't pull our shit together, you know, we're probably not going to survive as a species or at least not in very good shape. Mm -hmm. How did you first become interested in the Mayan world, Mayan prophecy, etc.? Well, I wrote a book, uh, Breaking Open the Head, where I started out as a secular materialist from a kind of cynical New York background, and I began to explore psychedelics during a spiritual existential crisis, spiritual emergency. And because I had journalistic training, I was able to get assignments to go to West Africa and go through tribal initiation and the Amazon. And beyond having these amazing visionary experiences, I also began to have a number of experiences that confirmed aspects of the shamanic knowledge systems that I didn't personally believe in, but then I had these experiences that subjectively confirmed them. So that could be shamans telling me information about my life that they couldn't have accessed through normal means that I hadn't told them. People telling me stuff that they heard about what was going to happen to them uh, that then happened to them. Even kind of occult experiences where um, I had sort of poltergeist phenomena, experiences of spirit manifestations and so on. And I had no context or belief system for this. So I began to recognize that there was a, a huge validity in the uh, traditions, the shamanic knowledge systems of indigenous people. And so at that point... I mean, I also knew about Terence McKenna's work and his hypothesis around 2012, and I'd read a bit, but I began to note that a lot of indigenous cultures around the world who, who we've basically dismissed as not having, quote-unquote, real knowledge or scientific knowledge seem to have a coherent understanding of being this prophesied uh, transformation time, you know, whether it's the Hopi or now the Inca have come forth, and then we have this data from the classical Mayans, and, and they seem to have been the most sophisticated shamanic wizard scientists in their use of a combination of uh, astronomical observation along with ritual technologies and exploration of non-ordinary states of consciousness through psychedelics to kind of put together this knowledge system to its most elaborate form. So can we just tease a couple things out there? Can you tell me what the Hopi and the Inca prophecies are? 
respectively? Well, the Inca recently stepped forward and said that you know, they also understand 2012 as being this transformation time. When you say they recently stepped forward, what do you mean? Was there some kind of proclamation or something? You know, Alberto Valaldo, he's been working with them. So that information comes from him, and he'd be a better person to talk about it than I would. But I do have a friend who was on a trip with him, and they went and visited these Incan elders in the mountains. And one of them asked, okay, so if this is coming true, what's the true meaning of 2012 from your perspective? And one of the Incan elders said, well, we're going to miss our white brother. Interesting. The Hopi talk about this time as being the uh, transition between the fourth world to the fifth world. They say they have a whole set of uh, oral prophecies that they've uh, inherited, and uh, most of them come to pass. There are only a few left. I went down to the Hopi land just for a very short period of time and talked to Martin Geshe-Suyama, I think his last name is. He's in the book, who's one of the last kind of I guess, lineage holders and holders of all this information. And he felt pretty certain that this time of uh, purification was uh, imminent. And he, was, he specified even that the U.S. government or secret government was going to be creating extermination machines. And he said that at that point that uh, some of these machines had already been built in uh, Louisiana uh, for whatever reason. I don't know where that information came from. It was quite bizarre. Extermination machines. Who are we exterminating? The vast excess population that uh, no longer has a purpose in this country. That's a pretty out there thought, projection into the future. What's the transformation from the fourth to the fifth world? What's the fourth world? What's the fifth world in the Hopi model? With none of these cultures do you get tremendous specifics. I mean, the fourth world is the world that we're in now. They have an emergence myth when they kind of emerge from their kivas and these kachina outfits. That symbolizes coming up from the underworld, from the between-world state into the new world. So in each of these uh, world cycles, there's a, a cycle of destruction and uh, recreation. So I really wasn't able to glean from them what this fifth world would be like. That archetype it seems to resonate through a lot of cultural traditions, including the uh, apocalypse tradition of the West, the Judeo-Christian tradition of there being, you know, apocalypse, Armageddon, and then uh, New Jerusalem, kind of a new city, a new human community. But it's hard to get specifics. The most specific construct, which is once again just a construct, just a model. I mean, and in everything that I'm presenting here... I would also say that it's not about a belief system or a new knowledge system. It's uh, about a thought experiment, about um, you know, thinking through this stuff as best that I can with my own limited capabilities. But uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, Rudolf Steiner's uh, model. He was an Austrian uh, visionary in the late 19th century through the early part of the 20th century. He said that the mission of his life on Earth was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West and that people uh, incarnated again and again, as you know, Buddhist traditions talk about, but that also the planet itself reincarnates and that he said we are currently in the fourth incarnation of the Earth, uh, moving towards the fifth incarnation. And he gave some specifics about the next incarnation of the Earth. And among the things that he said was that the organ of uh, generation of you know, new beings like ourselves was going to shift from the uh, second chakra, the sex chakra, to the throat chakra. So it would be much more of an aspect of kind of creative uh, communication. He also talked about the heart becoming a voluntary muscle. And he talked about um, that in each of these different worlds, we have different bodies, and that uh, we have now the 
physical body, the astral body, the ether body, and the I. And uh, in this uh, next world incarnation, we were getting a, a new body, which he talked about as the spirit self. And his concept was that basically uh, in this world, we just gain the eye, but it's still very young and kind of fragile. And the, the desires that are pouring through the astral body are basically too much for, for the eye for most people. So they give in to these desires all the time, consuming, smoking, addictions. But as we develop the spirit self, that's the eye growing in strength to the point where it can transform the astral body and is no longer prey by those desires, but can consciously uh, mediate them and, and take command over them, mastery over them. So in the next incarnation of the earth, it's about the uh, development of the uh, spirit self, the fifth body. And when you're talking about Rudolf Steiner's view of these different incarnations of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth are changing in each incarnational cycle, but I mean, the earth itself is still the earth. I mean, what, what do you mean exactly by a, a, the earth's reincarnation? Uh, that's a really fascinating question. And what I looked at in the book was... Um, this notion that our, you know, kind of form uh, or realization of consciousness determines everything, you know, even how like, kind of the material reality is uh, presented to us. And, uh, you know, Steiner talked about how there are these, um, you know, different kind of uh, realms of beings. There's the mineral realm, the plant realm, the animal realm. And in each of these successive incarnations, all of these realms transmute and go into a kind of higher state. So at the moment, you have um, the plant realm in a deep, dreamless state of consciousness. And then in the next realm, the plants become uh, enter dreaming consciousness. They begin to wake up further. The mineral realm develops further. So he's really seeing it as um, a very deep transmutation in uh, the actual realized experience of uh, whatever uh, the, ma the materiality of our dimension is. It's almost more like another dimension than it is just a similar world. Hmm. Okay, and then another... Oh, and I, and I, di I did want to note also that it's very interesting if you look at the experiences that people have on uh, DMT or ayahuasca. Dimethyltryptamine is a... Um, chemical that's in the brain and the spinal column, and it's produced by a lot of uh, plants. And uh, Rick Strassman wrote a book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule, where he did a lot of research on DMT. He was a, he was a Buddhist, and he'd been reading Buddhist texts. He found that the uh, soul uh, reincarnates, uh, according to Buddhism, uh, seven weeks after death. Then he discovered that the pineal gland, which is the singular organ in the middle of the brain, appears exactly seven weeks or 49 days after fetal conception. So he began to find this a very numinous correspondence. He wondered if there was a... Uh, chemical uh, catalyst that somehow mediated the uh, entry of the soul into the body when the fetus develops and then releases the soul at death. And he first explored melatonin and then he was the first person since the 60s to get to do research on um, human subjects with the psychedelic, with dimethyltryptamine or DMT. And so he ended up putting forth the thesis that uh, dimethyltryptamine might be this conductive medium that uh, brings the uh, reincarnating soul into the body at birth and then releases it at death. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, ayahuasca is, is very sonically mediated. The indigenous cultures will always chant or the daime will always sing. And the use of music and tone actually sort of uh, conjures up or brings into kind of visionary reality different uh, spiritual realms. And if you smoke DMT, you can also have glossolalia experiences, very similar, like fast chanting, nonsense chanting, but it seems like you're almost in communication with this kind of uh, deeper spiritual 
spiritual intelligence. So it, it could be uh, possible that that's pointing towards this uh, shift from uh, the sex chakra to the throat chakra in terms of generation. I didn't follow that last part. How are we shifting to the throat chakra? Well, the, the shamans, when I visited in Sequoia, talked about how they were able to uh, sing plants into being through the ayahuasca ceremony, that uh, sometimes um, they would need like a new plant, a healing plant or something for their tribe, and they would all get together, they would drink the ayahuasca, they would sing all night long, and then at the end of the night, the shaman would look down in his hand, and he would have like a seed in his hand or a sapling, and that would grow into the new uh, medicinal herb that the tribe had wanted. It may be that uh, in terms of developing a kind of uh, psychic or shamanic technologies, that there's something about using uh, sound waves, chanting in these DMT states that is uh, primarily uh, generative, kind of like a, a way of accessing uh, the, the logos directly. Okay, wild stuff here, wild. Now, you also mentioned Terrence McKenna mm-hmm. and his work with 2012. Could you summarize that for me? I'm getting this, you know, sort of cliff notes here, Daniel, on so many different things listening to you, so I, I'm counting on you to inform me here. Well, yeah, so Terrence McKenna uh, was in the Colombian Amazon in the early 70s, and um, he was with his brother, and they were um, exploring um, psilocybin mushrooms, and they ate a whole bunch of them, and they both had a kind of break with normal consensual reality. And for a week, Terrence claims that he wasn't able to sleep, he was continually up, and he was in uh, dialogue with the uh, psilocybin intelligence. And he claims that the mushroom transmitted a lot of uh, information to him. And uh, among the things that the mushroom explained was that it itself was a kind of uh, galactic intelligence, in a sense a galactic uh, civilization or society that traveled across the universe as spores on meteorites. And then it would crash into uh, different planets they would wait for um, mammalian species to develop a central nervous system and, and a certain amount of consciousness. And then it would help evolve that species to be a uh, galactic-level civilization. And so the mushroom explained that we were on the verge of making that type of symbiotic relationship with the uh, DNA of the uh, mushroom to get to this next level of galactic civilization. Then at the same time, the mushroom explained that our model of time was uh, extremely limited and that there were different forms of time that were different sort of realizations of time and space that were based on kind of your level of consciousness. You know, our, our whole concept of history is in itself a historical construct. Tribal groups don't have linear progressive history the way we do. They have a mythic-based uh, reality. Traditional cultures didn't have history. They had cycles and, you know, hero cycles and so on. So um, the mushroom kind of warned McKenna that we were on the, the edge of uh, one way of uh, conceptualizing and realizing uh, time and space and that there would be a breakthrough into a different realization of, of time and space. And so McKenna left the jungle and went back home and was sort of feverishly obsessed with this notion. And he spent uh, years trying to create a mathematical uh, model out of it. So then he developed uh, the time wave, which was meant to chart the uh, ingression of uh, novelty into history. And he did some work with the I Ching uh, hexagrams and made a kind of mathematical system out of them. And when he put this whole thing together, kind of possessed by this concept, he ended up putting the end of our form of time at the year 2012 without knowing about the uh, date of the Mayan calendar, he claims. And it was only uh, later that he discovered that the Mayans uh, had used the same date as the end of their long cycle. Hmm. 
You know, this idea of the mushroom spores coming from some galactic, some extraterrestrial source, extra-Earth source, you know, there's a lot of talk with 2012 as our consciousness will become more, quote-unquote, galactically connected, perhaps from the galactic alignment, etc. What do you think about all that? I don't really know. I mean, uh, you know, part of uh, my last book, 2012, I studied the crop circles, and I ended up putting out the hypothesis that they, it really didn't seem to me, from studying it intensively, that they could all be made by people, which means that some other agency is making them, which means that it you know, would have to be some other form of intelligence that's trying to communicate with us, it would seem. So, you know, the, the, it seems possible to me. And then if you look at the whole history of the, um, the sort of secret, murky history of uh, alien abductions and the sense of some kind of maybe covert connections between aspects of the secret government and alien forces, uh, Roswell and so on, there's a lot of smoke there. Maybe some fire also. You know, maybe there is some truth to it. Or, or maybe it may all be happening at a slightly different plane of consciousness or slightly different plane of reality than our normal waking experience. But I, I think that it may have legitimacy in it, and it may be that as we um, intensify our own psyche to a certain respect, we may be able to be more consciously interactive with other forms of cosmic intelligence. Have you had any personal experiences that would give you any reason to believe in alien forces or extra-dimensional forces that could be responsible for something like crop circles? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that I've had some. I, mean, I, I really try not to believe in anything, believe it or not. But, I mean, I've had interesting UFO experiences. Uh, I've could, had, you be, um, could you be more specific? What happened? Uh, I, you know, like um, when I was in Chaco Canyon, which was the uh, where the Anasazi uh, were, who sort of mysteriously disappeared, or maybe they were the forerunners to the Hopi, I saw a um, fast-moving light that uh, was doing kind of incredible, ridiculous uh, patterns in the sky for a while and then disappeared. Totally impossible that it would have been either a star or an airplane or anything that, that we know about. I've had um, visionary experiences or I've had a sense of being in touch with different types of forces and energies. And I mean, I discussed some of them in the book but um, there's no, you know, hard and fast evidence, really. I mean, I did have uh, one experience, which I didn't discuss in the book, of a uh, manifestation. Uh, I took uh, ayahuasca with some friends in New York City, and at that point was having writer's block. I was thinking about Quetzalcoatl. I was thinking about cosmic serpents, which is what ayahuasca is sometimes called. We went out after our ayahuasca experience, and... They went to get a drink, and I was standing outside, and I, and I noticed this thing in a tree. And I pulled it out of the center of a tree, and it was a, a metal pen made of pewter in the form of a cobra. And it felt as if kind of like myth and reality had kind of like merged or, or some other force had somehow placed this there for me to, to pull out. So, you know, I, I've had other strange experiences like that. I mean, a lot of synchronistic-type experiences which I'm, I'm sure you've had also. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I'm reflecting on, and once again, Daniel, I already said I'm the 2012 grump, right? So you have to be generous towards me. What I'm thinking of is, you know, I remember taking LSD as a kid, looking at a T-shirt in a swimming pool and thinking it was a lobster. And two days later, I saw it was an orange T-shirt. But did I need to have an experience of a lobster at that moment for some reason? 
What I discovered with the crop circles is um, when I brought people into that phenomenon with me, the uh, types of experiences that they would have seem to be uh, determined by what their kind of uh, set and setting was, like what they would allow into possibility. So people who had a basically skeptical and, and grumpy mindset about the phenomenon would have experiences that, that confirmed their skepticism and their grumpiness. Um, and I had friends from California who kind of scoffed at the whole thing. We would find boards and string outside the phenomena almost. I'm exaggerating a little bit. We'd find really, we couldn't even find one good crop circle. I had other friends who were more open to it. We would find uh, extraordinary, like pristine formations, which had a very strong uh, energetic imprint. I uh, visited another crop circle with a guy who was a kind of paranoid, uh, phobic, you know, government conspiracy guy. We were in the crop circle together for 10 minutes, and a black helicopter appeared overhead and began to circle around the crop circle. People who were more kind of new age, bliss bunny types, they would see light beings or have chakra activations. So it began to seem as if the phenomenon was almost playing with the individual's perspective and kind of almost magnifying and amplifying what your intentions were, what your level of belief or skepticism was. I began to see the whole phenomenon in itself as a kind of teaching on the nature of consciousness and on the power of intention. That's very much a lesson that one can get from the psychedelic experience if one explores it uh, in depth and takes it you know, with some seriousness. And so if you were to just take that lesson to its conclusion, your conclusion is dot, 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 the world's a reflection of your state of being? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, if you get into um, Vedantic philosophy, which I pretty much ascribe to, there's kind of no you ultimately anyway. I mean, there's, there's a singular consciousness which plays with its creation by taking uh, individual embodiments so that it can enjoy the maya, you know, interestingly, the same word as, as the Mayan civilization. And so, you know, from that perspective, the universe is ultimately a construct of consciousness, and where you are at your level of being and consciousness magnetizes uh, different sets of possibilities. And so whether somebody lives in a prosaic or a uh, fully uh, realized magical uh, realm is going to be a kind of projection of their state of consciousness. Now, having said that, I would make a distinction between what I see to be a very dangerous, uh, distorted type of New Age message put out by people like the people who made The Secret or you know, Deepak Chopra's ideas of the spiritual laws of success, which is the sense that you, know, you can just create or invent uh, whatever. Because first of all, there's a karmic you know, burden or aspect of each individual being. And uh, second of all, the, the world that exists is also crystallized out of our past behavior and our past actions. You can't just, like, wish that away. I mean, personally, you know, I'm, I'm often not looking forward to the next few years. I think a lot of people are going to um, suffer, and it's going to be very, very difficult on many respects. It may also be very beautiful and moving in, in other respects. But it's not like I can avoid it. I can't change the channel or use the laws of spiritual success to just wish it away. You know, we're all in this boat together, and, and this boat has been created by our, the karmic field of our species, uh, which has gotten us to this point. When you say that, when you feel into it, that the next few years could be quite painful, what is it that you're potentially seeing? 
Well, I mean, I think that this economic collapse is uh, the second node on a kind of uh, octave. I don't know if you know the whole Gurdjieff Enneagram system, but it feels like 9-11 was like this first node on this new octave of, of transformation in a way. And then this economic collapse for me is like the second uh, node in that scale. And I think that it's going to become potentially, I, I hope not, and I don't know, and I don't want to, you know, project in a way, but the type of uh, level of, of comfort and easy access to all types of stuff is not going to be there anymore. And in fact, we may end up in, in this country and, and in a lot of countries in the world going through a kind of a mega collapse. I mean, I, I recently wrote about uh, Dmitry Orlov's book, uh, Reinventing Collapse. And he thinks we're about to go through something similar to what Russia went through after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he recommends people begin to envision what it's like to live in a world where money has no value, you know, where everything is based on barter and, and black markets and piracy and so on. That's possible. It's possible that um, our nation is going to collapse into feuding and fighting factions. I mean, I think anything is really possible. Foreign creditors have been funding $2 billion a day to keep the U.S. in operation. We spend about a trillion dollars a year on our military. It's not conceivable that that's going to go on too much longer. So then what happens? A lot of people are going to be very, very angry and frustrated. For me, like this was an inevitable collapse. In my book, 2012, I talked about socioeconomic meltdown around the year 2008. I also discussed it in a 2006 Rolling Stone profile with me. So for me, if we look at uh, capitalism and, and why it would have to reach this level at this point, I think there are two aspects to it. One is that capitalism is a, a debt-based uh, economic system that artificially forces uh, competitive and hyper-competitive and hyperactive behavior because people have to keep trying to service this gigantic debt. And that works as long as there's more and more cheap energy that allows you to keep working away like that and also more and more new markets where capitalism can go and penetrate and extract resources and goods and stuff. Well, now we have a single globalized world market. There aren't any new markets really to, to exploit like that. And also we have hit peak oil. So energy is now becoming generally more expensive and demand is exceeding uh, supply. So at that point, those massive debts which have been propelling the system can not be honored anymore. So the basic underpinnings of, of, the, of the financial order have to crumble at that point. So it's very likely to be a very difficult time. And then we also can see the uh, continued acceleration of climate change and climate crisis. I mean, there were already world hunger riots uh, around the world in many countries last spring. And, you know, we can see, you know, forest fires in California growing. And I traveled around last summer. You know, everywhere I went, there were like massive floods, huge tornadoes. The weather is changing radically. So we have less money, less protection, and more destruction coming our way. And that could get magnified very quickly. You know, and, and certain people like, uh, you know, Ama, the Indian hugging saint? Yeah. So apparently uh, she recently was in a, a deity trance at her ashram, and she said that um, in a few years was going to come a time, I think she even specified two years, where there was going to be immense suffering on the earth, and that uh, most people were going to wish that they'd never been born. Wow. And, she, and she said at that point her uh, ashram on the coast of uh, Northern California would uh, be underwater. So obviously that's one person speaking. I mean, apparently after she said this, was being videotaped, she had her uh, followers erase that part of the tape because she didn't want that message going outside of her ashram. So it's only sort of trickled out by word of mouth. And it was like friends of friends who'd been there who told me about it. But anyway, that's one person's conception of what could happen. 
But if you look at what a lot of scientists are saying, like I read a book about sort of tipping points and climate systems, we really don't know how sensitive the system is and at what point the changes could accelerate much more rapidly than, than have been anticipated. And once again, I go back to this concept that the Hopis talk about, about a purification, that in a way we're going through an initiatory process for human consciousness on a global scale. And at the end of this process, we're going to be uh, different than we are now. You know, sometimes when I hear people talk about 2012, they talk about it in black or white terms. Either we're going to have this rebirth of fabulous, enlightened consciousness, or we're going to be going through all this pain and destruction. But it seems if we're working here with an archetype of death and rebirth, we're going to have to have both. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think hopefully we will ultimately, you know, move to a higher order civilization. And we can see that, or, you know, I don't even know if we have civilization at this point, but we can see that there are models, counter histories to the dominant history, histories of uh, resistance, histories of uh, nonviolent force overcoming violent, oppressive opposition, histories of communities that work together, you know, the history of tribal people and how they live together. So we have counter-histories and counter-mythologies and, and counter-organizational possibilities to what we've been subjected to, in a way. Hopefully, those get activated. It does seem that we're going to be first forced to uh, fully experience the uh, consequences of our uh, species' behavior up to this point. We started off, Daniel, by talking about the intuitive and the rational and a time when we can bring this together and how we have to bring these two things together in ourselves to even begin to understand something like 2012. And I'm curious, just inside of you, how those two things work, your intuitive nature and your rational nature. It seems like both are very developed. Do you ever find them not getting along or how does this all work together for you? Well, they get along better and better. I mean, they get along very, very well. And, and so basically, um, I was very much of a rational type thinker. And then when I went through this process of kind of my own personal initiation to a certain extent in, into a, a shamanic world conception, I rationally integrated synchronicity, intuition, trying to learn how to use these insights that emerge or these chance meetings or the way these kind of keys that suddenly uh, emerge out of, out of the normal chaos of activity as kind of a magnetic devices to kind of pull me forward and into new understandings. So I, I've just tried very hard to um, develop a personal uh, methodology and I've tried to learn how to be patient, to be uh, less attached to outcome while never like relinquishing uh, goal or intention. A lot of uh, native cultures really talk about uh, intention being uh, almost the, the most important uh, thing in what it means to be human. For me, that's a very powerful concept because we, I think what we see in our, in our normal society is either people having uh, no intention or having uh, miserable, poor intentions. You know? So I think that if enough people begin to change their intention and begin to use it to try to bring about a different social organization, different result, that could catch, you know, could be contagious. And what is your intention? 
in a sense, something between revolution and evolution. Like I would like to see a um, equitable, uh, compassionate global society uh, where uh, you know resources were rationally distributed, and uh, I would like to see that the realm of the psyche would be uh, integrated uh, into uh, mainstream awareness, so that as a global society we would maybe begin to adapt a whole different paradigm for understanding reality and that would reverberate on everything. I think reestablishing a kind of uh, sacred conception of the universe and one another would be a positive thing. But also I'm very interested in really tools. I'm very interested in the whole design science, Buckminster Fuller design science approach to how, uh, you know, positive change could be brought about. Like Buckminster Fuller talked about really seeing all of society's problems as design problems to which there are design solutions. So the money system is something that we've designed that supports competitive behavior and sort of hoarding activity, whereas uh, you know people have put forth that you could redesign the monetary system to support a collaborative and, and community-based behavior. This guy, Bernard Lettier, wrote a book called The Future of Money, and he was one of the architects of the euro. And he looked at the whole history of money systems and put forth the idea that you could create a um, currency that used uh, negative interest, it actually lost value if you held onto it, it was indexed to a set of commodities and resources that had actual tangible value, not just kind of free-floating like the dollar. If you use that type of currency, people wouldn't gain from hoarding it, they would gain from sharing it. The benefit in having the money would be to share it with your communities. So people would remember that you did them a good turn when you had the opportunity, they would want to do the same for you. So we can see there's certain types of basic aspects to human behavior that how we construct our social system then determines what types of behavior are elicited from people. This capitalist sort of empire system tends to uh, elicit kind of sociopathic and ecologically destructive behavior, but that's basically due to bad design. So my intention would be to help influence a kind of rethinking and then and a redesign of our global systems. Now.